every time one single person listens, listens to our we podcast, celebrate. we lose our minds. We text each We're other. We're drunk all the time. We have a constant slew of just, parties. We carry champagne around our necks. Uh, yeah, and just like a little vial. A vial of champagne. A vial of champagne. It's pretty reasonable. It's pretty classy, I have to say. And honestly, not enough to get drunk, so you can drive with it. Yeah. But we need to refill it constantly because, because every single time celebrate. one person listens to the podcast, we throw ourselves a little party. We don't have a lot of friends and it's COVID, so it's a really small party, but it is, it, it, the heart is there. The vibe is there. Can you imagine that's a listen? When Tons a, of house music. When we get a new Patreon subscriber, naked. Naked. <laughs> it's like just sheer it's joy. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. We text we each cry. other. We cry. And I do a little Oscar speech in my bathroom. Have you practiced your Oscar speech? <laughs> um, the problem is I realized I had to stop doing it because it right. was mostly angry and it was Ooh. mostly at people that had wronged me and was like a fuck you speech. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I think you might have to stop practicing your fuck you Oscar speech because it's Wait. so intense and dark at this point. It's mostly I'm in it. I would love to become famous, but only to hurt others. Quinn, <laughs> I am obsessed with that. I want to hear it. No, you don't. I love the fact that an Oscar speech is your, like, vigilante justice for yourself. It's, it's like just you're... mean. <gasps> Honestly, if any of you are Oscar voters, please consider Quinn. Please. please consider her. I am begging of you. <laughs> Casting directors, book her. If the Academy is listening. If the Academy is listening. I have so much vitriol that is ready to be spewed oh. that it will cover your... Windshield. Would you do a different speech at the SAG Awards? Oh, obviously. Yeah. And plus, I would have already gotten like half the people I wanted to say mean things to out at the Oscars, so I would well, have a SAG new SAG is list. first, and then it's Oscars. But yeah, no, you can say whatever. Got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know or familiar, but it's award season. <laughs> is it? It is. I um... listen. I am actually aware, and here's the thing: we made a list of the best picture nominees, and we were like going to work our way through it, but. All of the, all of them are like two hours and forty five minutes long. The movies. That's tough. And what I've been doing is I've been watching them with Braden and Matt, and I fall asleep for forty five minutes of the two hour forty five <laughs> minute movie in the middle. So it's a quick see. two hours. Well, it's a quick two hours, and it's also a good judge of could the movie have done without? Because if I wake up and watch the whole movie and I don't have any questions for them, it's problematic. The movie was that long. You should have edited, because I shouldn't probably be able to take a 45-minute nap during your film and still feel like, you know what? I got it. That's basically a third of the film. Right. We watched um, the Chicago 7, though, mm -hmm. and I that so far has been my favorite one. Um, Want to hear something kind of cool? Yes. My dad knows the judge on that case. He's a dick bag. That's what I hear. I Does haven't your watched dad it. like him? Um, I don't think my dad hasn't had any opinions. Because if on he him. does, he should watch that movie. It might change his mind. Here's the thing: is I don't know if I'm gonna whatever. He, yeah, dad was like, oh yeah, I know that guy. Apparently, he had security the rest of his life or something. Seems like he would need it. He was so horrible. I, I haven't watched it, but I can assume not not a good look. 
the, you mean, well, the criminal justice system not help not favoring people of color wild like uh, yeah, having a everything know. about it is horrible but totally. um what what's also horrible is someone like me uh pushing 40 doesn't know the story till they see the movie Somehow I'm coasting through life and it's going completely un- unnoticed that I am uneducated and I do not know anything that happened in this world or this country or anything. Like I just, every time I see a movie like that, I'm like, wow, I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, I mean, the history, the, what we quote learn from history, pretty skewed. Pretty you could skewed. probably also show me a fiction movie at this point, mm-hmm. and I'd pull a Whitney Posner and be like, "Wild story, didn't know that happened." And people would be like, it was "Didn't the happen." Weirdest. You're gonna die, Brianna. What? Saw Titanic. <gasps> Found out later. True story. She was like, "Wait." That it was a true story. Yep. Like that Titanic happened. Like. The Wait a minute, not the love story. No, the no. actual sinking of the fucking boat? Yes. She thought the no. whole thing was no. a fictional movie. No. And so when she found out the Titanic no. piece of the puzzle was a real piece, her mind was blown. Honestly, though, I'm genuinely jealous of her because she really didn't know what was going to happen. No. Because everybody else was going like, She's I like, remember. is it really going to sink? I remember learning about the Titanic. And like I think when I was young... And I guess you can safely say as an adult, it's the same. I love a dark, like, like Pompeii. The Pompeii week at school was dope. Like, Titanic education. I was like, hell yeah. Like, this, like, massive tragedy shit. I was so into the drama yeah. of it. I can't believe she didn't know Titanic was a real event. Should we become, like, weird truthers that tell people the Titanic <laughs> never happened? And that it is I don't all... think I could. Based on my love for <laughs> Celine, Kate Winslet, mostly oh. Celine. Yeah. Mostly Celine. I, I couldn't do that to her. No. That would be hurtful. Also, I've gone to the Titanic exhibit. I've touched the wall of ice. Do an impression of what Celine would do if you did that. What, she, what would she say to you, Carrie, if you became like a, the Titanic never happened truther? She would say, oh, she Swiss. <laughs> she Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. No, she Swiss. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's, that's not her accent. I Okay, so there's a video of her. If you haven't, dear readers, watched this video, I can't recommend it enough. What I love about Selena is she's never tried to act. Like, she's always known her place as a diva singer. Like, she acts in her music videos in, like, very bodice-ripping energy. Of course, I'm thinking about It's All Coming Back to Me, that video with Milof. So I think, like, you know, she understands her lane, and she stays in it, and she's so incredible. Um, but there's a video of her after Hurricane Katrina happened on the Larry King live mm-hmm. show. He's interviewing her, and her heart, you can tell how open her heart is, genuinely. Like, I do think this woman has a genuine care and love for the world. Mm-hmm. And Hurricane Katrina happened to New Orleans and the surrounding areas, and she's being interviewed about it, and it turns into her crying live, Mm -hmm. and she says things like, I wake up, I open my TV, I make up my cup of coffee, I cannot swallow it. (laughs) 
and then she says she goes people are dying and she's what did she say she goes yes we give a million dollar but they need us help now they're waving their arms they steal 40 pieces of jeans let them do it <laughs> and then she's wiping her tears in a way I'm doing it for Quinn but she's wiping it like this and then she going the mother's cheese whiz <laughs> while she's fully having an emotional moment and then the best is at the end you can tell Larry King in his ear he's like get her to sing get her to sing get her to sing get her to sing and so at the end he tells Celine he goes um Celine is there uh is there a song that best encapsulates what you feel and she goes thank you very much for asking um the only song I can think of is The Prayer. I sing with Andrea Bocelli. And then he's, she's like, and I will sing for you now. And then <laughs> <laughs> I love her. And then without, like, she breathes, collects herself, and immediately is like, I pray you'll be all right. <laughs> and watch us where we go. And it's pitch fucking perfect. She's so amazing. And she, like just flawlessly even though it's like the <laughs> love her <laughs> this is a ode to Celine I love Celine, you Celine you're the only one I will actually genuinely thank in like, my Oscar speech her heart is so pure it's so beautiful I love her her heart I love her so much will go I, on that was please and watch that video because it's really objectively funny but also her heart is so pure and kind oh um let me find our notes here <gasps> Also, I want to say thank <gasps> you to Jennifer, 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 I'm on to you. Are you friends with Jamie? Are you related? You guys have the same last name. <laughs> <laughs> also, Alexis. Alexis. What? I was wondering when you were going to jump on board. We love you, Alexis. It's a little bit Alexis. It's a little bit Alexis. Alexis, do you get annoyed if you say your name next to the Amazon device? Does it light up? I bet it does. That's probably really annoying. Do you? Oh, um, I was Alexis, watching Shit's Creek, so and every time it was much. saying it, it'd be like, bring Alexis. Bring. I'd be like, oh, God, relax. <laughs> She's so trigger happy that uh, Alexa. That device. Do we also have um, Emma? Emma? Is there Emma, a new Patreon subscriber? And, of course, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, Emma, thank you, amazing. Emma. Also, Emma, thank you for being Emma. Um, the other thing I have to give a shout-out to is Quinn as a, a shout-out to me? Yeah, I want to give a shout-out to you. Quinn modeled recently... Did a little modeling stint. She did a lot modeling stint. I can't believe we haven't put it all over our socials. Uh, there's a pretty good reason for that. Why? You look great. I like. Uh, I would love for you to talk to Matt about how that day went. Which is to say, by the way, I'm doing it today. There I'm were a lot of model today. There were angry tears. You know. Oh, Quinn, what's up? Oh, I so don't want to even say because it's. Um, you know what? Well, here we go. So my friend. And neighbor has started a really cute online business that is vintage clothes and asked me to model a few of them for her site. I am post baby body right now. My body is still not my own. My breasts are about three times the size they normally are. And none of my own clothes fit me. And then I'm putting on clothes that are sizes that I recognize as sizes that 
would have fit me one day and do not fit me right now. Right. And it doesn't matter if it's a skirt or a dress. It, I put it on and it's, it's the kind of like, you, you can shit on your body and totally. have everyone around you be like, you uh, look great. Uh, you look great. Here's the thing. I was putting on clothing that was clothing that was meant to have utilitarian pockets that I couldn't get that were like pushed oh. to the sides of my waist and turning inside out and I couldn't get my hands into. I know the So we're feeling. just we're talking so about sorry. there was no like you look good or you look bad argument. It was just like I don't fit in these clothes. Totally. So I was having like an emotional breakdown oh. and then I was having, and then I was like, Matt, you need to take a picture of me in these clothes. I said I would do this. And then he would be like, well, shouldn't we wait till she's here? And I would be like, no one is going to be here. Wow. I am wearing these clothes. <laughs> like, uh, So I was really, it, it was Aww. a really emotional modeling show. Thank you for sharing that story, by the way, because I'm sure that is the same. I mean, you talking about that. I also think your post baby, it's pandemic body season. Like, I think also like our bodies bring up so much, so many feelings. My body is currently bringing up a lot of feelings. I don't, I just, and I don't fit in my own clothes right now. So it was just, it was definitely not the time in my life that I would have chosen to model clothing for any totally. reason even children's cancer i wouldn't do it you know totally. so it was just uh also that's for very rich people who you know for can't they like pe- rich people who want to be a model for a day that's why they do that so i don't think that's for us anyway right it's not they they're not asking they're not cancer asking. hasn't asked by the way, me cancer Let hasn't asked clear. you to model clothes so i think it's important we t- clarify to the tear readers <laughs> cancer hasn't come knocking. no <laughs> and I don't anticipate they will anytime soon. So uh, it was um yeah it was an emotional afternoon. There was a lot of yelling at Matt. Oh, you know. Will you take? I mean, oh, I know that feeling so well. I know that feeling so well, and I recognize it. And I'm sorry that yeah. that happened. But I'm I'm really proud of you for doing it. Ah, <sighs> thanks. I worked out yesterday, and I can't move my body, so that's fun. What did you do for a workout? I did a Peloton class, and I felt... Wait, so you can do a Peloton class sans Peloton. All right. Yeah. They have, like, um, strength, hit cardio. Oh, cool. They have, like, it's fun, That actually. does sound fun, actually. I like hitting things. It's, well, I mean, it's hit... They don't into, let you hit your kids anymore, so you got to I mean, find something else, you know? Not, I mean, you can if you're just not found out, but... The HIT cardio is high-intensive interval training. It's HIT. I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce the other I, but it's It's HIT. It's a double I, which... HIT. (laughs) Not HIT. I believe it's pronounced HIT. 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 I walked nine miles yesterday. And I walked nine Nine miles. miles. (laughs) And I I walked four and a half miles. And then I walked four and a half more just to go to the zoo with my toddler. Wait, you went four and a half miles to walk to the zoo? Yeah, we walked to the Prospect Park Zoo. Fun. How was it? It was hilarious. I mean, Cole loves the zoo. Um, He knows it now, so it's a really small zoo, so he'll be like, right this way. Follow me. (laughs) Would you like to see a red panda? And I'm like, I would. And he's like, here it is. They have a red panda They have a red panda. They have a porcupine. They've got some things. One thing they have is bats, which he was really, really excited to see and talked about a lot. And then you, like, 
he's, you know, three. So you get to the bats and you're like, there's the bats. And he goes, yep. And then like keeps walking. <laughs> and you're like, so that's what we were excited about all day. They have a petting zoo or like you can buy food and feed. Um, They have like a barn area. You can feed like a alpaca and some goats and stuff. Right. And Koa made me get all these quarters and bring them so we'd be able to buy food. And then he was like, now you feed them. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, I'll watch. You feed them. So <laughs> I said to keep buying food and feeding the animals, and he would, like, watch approvingly or disapprovingly. Maybe it's not King Griffin. Maybe it's King Koa. Well, Maybe. <laughs> Please, you feed. That's really tell you, sweet. it's not Queen Quinn, because I was walking around sure feeding not. alpacas all afternoon and then walking four and a half miles Are home. You, is your body sore? Yes. Yeah. Any type of movement. My body is a blender land. It hurts everywhere. <laughs> My body is blender land. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, working out is hard. I felt like I hurt my hammy. That's a workout for hamstring. Workout lingo. That's workout lingo for hamstring. And I think I hurt, and it was sore today, and then riding my bike to get here, I was like, Carrie's going very slow. <laughs> <laughs> That was me. Shouldn't make that noise in the microphone. <laughs> By the way, little Easter egg in the episode that came out. Carrie thinks she heard a fart. I think I hear a fart. And I showed Quinn. And it was genuinely very funny. And I was really serious. And I just said, keep it. And we kept it. So that's an Easter egg. If you go back to... Happy Easter, everyone. Episode 69? 69? <laughs> I, think, I think it's 69. There's a fart. Um, by the way, you're listening to, truly... Darkly. Creepily... <laughs> Not you. You're going to join me. I've never not joined you. I wanted to. I don't know. I'm like Did an experiment. Did you see? I got so, <laughs> so freaked scared. out. All right. All right. Creepily. <laughs> I'm Carrie Epema. I'm Gwendolyn Posner. I she just scared the me. shit out of Carrie by not saying creepily at the same time as her. It was so easy to scare you. It was very um, easy to scare I'm going to tell you a story I today. I think it's me go first. <laughs> okay. So I'm doing the story of John... ML List. Have you heard of him? <gasps> wait, 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 wait. Does this story feature a um, chandelier? A chandelier? No. Yes, it does. It's John List? Yeah. It's writing that it was a, it was a Tiffany skylight, not oh. a chandelier. Okay. Okay. I got my information from Wikipedia, Medium, Murderpedia, Criminal Minds, New York Times, True Crime Mama, all that's interesting. I think it's worth noting that the further I go down into research, the less I read, the more I skim. <laughs> you, know, the like, you get all this information, then you're like, this is the same, this is the same. And you like have little kernels, you're like, all right, I'll take that. Yeah. Okay. So John Emma List is born in Michigan. He's wait, his middle name's Emma? Emil. E-M-I-L. Oh, okay. Emil. Is it Emil? He was born like German parents, pretty strict upbringing. He's raised as a devout Lutheran. That's mm-hmm. very important. His religion, he maintains his devout religious status, devout Lutheran status his whole life. In 1943, he serves as a lab tech in World War II. He then goes to University of Michigan, gets a degree in business, and goes into accounting. It's 1950. The Korean War happens, so he's called to serve again. He goes to Fort Eustis, Virginia, where he meets a recent war widow by the name of Helen Morris Taylor. She had just buried her husband. Um, herself? <laughs> herself. It was wild. It was wild. It was. Uh, she was really dirty. Um, <laughs> rare. 
Anywho, so she's this recent. So her husband recently died in the Korean War, and so she just buried him herself. And then she had one daughter by the name of Brenda, who was nine years old. So she starts this relationship. He's like this guy. The way they describe him is he's always in a suit. He's pretty quiet, a bit cold, but like very conservative, polite, kind of by the book. But there's something under there that like is a little off. Him and Helen had this whirlwind romance where she tells him that she's pregnant. And so they quickly get married, which the two of them end up getting married in 1951 in Maryland. Then quickly he found out, psych, she wasn't pregnant. She kind of maybe tricked him. Hmm. I don't know. Or maybe her period was late. I don't know what pregnancy tests were in the 1950s. And as a single woman, probably not easy to come by. Uh-uh. But anyway, she was not pregnant. Con. And because he's a devout Lutheran, divorce isn't really an option. So he stays with her. They then moved to California. And um, it was during the wartime effort. And they found out that he had accounting experience. So he was enlisted in the financial corps. After he finished his service in 1952, he moved to Detroit. They had three kids within four years. In 1960, Brenda, the oldest daughter, she got married. And then John List took the whole family and his mother to Rochester, New York. And then eventually he relocated for work because he had a job as a vice president and a comptroller of a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. At that point, he bought this, like, dream home. It's this 19-room Victorian home known as Breeze Knoll. Breeze Knoll. Breeze Knoll. Great. I love homes with names. What's your home name? Magnolia Manor. Magnolia Manor. Because of the magnolia tree. Beauty. Um, this was in Westfield. So this house, here's the thing, is he keeps getting relocated, It's important to know that John was very good at every job he did. He was, like, meticulous. He was very good. But there was something off about him that everybody recognized. And so when people would get laid off, it was usually John. Because there was something weird about him. He was meticulous. He was diligent in his work. But he was not a really personable dude. Just off. He was just off. And he couldn't really afford this home. He had a lot of job turnover. He kept... It's so weird to me when it's like he couldn't really afford this home and it's 19 rooms. You're like... Who needs... Do you need, with a like, ballroom. Do you need a ballroom, sir? You, and a billiard room a lot of without balls. the... Bill, it was like, they have a billiard room without the pool table. It's and like, it's like well, downtown Abbey when they're like, I think we're aging out of having homes like this. And then you hear about someone in modern day buying something like that. And you're totally. like... Totally. What Unless you you're turning doing? it into a air a B and B or a hotel, get out of there. Unless you're fucking Oscar Wilde, what are you doing? With I can't a ball imagine. Room? Like for sure, if you have a house that you cannot check if there's a murderer in every room before you go to bed, it's too big. Maybe that's his workout. Do <laughs> you imagine not like having a house or cleaning that house would be a fucking nightmare? Could you imagine losing like your keys or something? Oh, You're like, end it have all. you looked in the music room? I don't even use my office that Maybe I have in my apartment. Maybe it's inside the tuba. <laughs> I have a New York one bedroom. I seldom use a room. It's wasted. It's a waste. It's a waste. Don't waste space. His, he couldn't really afford this anyway. His mother, Alma, helped him. She helped him with the loan. And in exchange, because she was a recent widower herself, she ended up moving into this, like, self-contained apartment in this 19-room home. 
Right. So she lived Got in the it. attic in the third floor by herself in this own apartment. Mother's in the attic. Mother's in the attic, <laughs> which Norman already Batesy. is creepy. Yeah, yeah it's Don't already too it. much. Um, and like I said, he was having a really hard time finding a job and keeping a job. And there was a lot of shame with that. Apparently, I read this in one of the articles where it was like, according to Lutheranism, being in poverty is a sin, which feels like the opposite of the teachings of Jesus. Indeed. Right? I don't know much, as everyone knows, but I do... Uh, I do I th- think if you come by riches, you're supposed to give it by a 19-room home. And not share with anyone. <laughs> there was, There's, I think, an old adage from the Bible where it said it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich, rich man, man to, to go enter to the gates yeah, of yeah. heaven. Got it. So apparently poverty is a sin. That's confusing. So he didn't want to tell his family that he was without a job. So he would go out on job interviews, but every day he would get ready, go on the train, read a newspaper, and then come back around dinner time. Mm-hmm. At the, he would also skim his mother's bank account to pay for the mortgage. And he encouraged his kids to get part-time work to, quote, teach them responsibility. But actually, it was just to help make money for the family. Oh, God, so his kids are working like... <laughs> his kids are Sam in Goody, school. and he's like, uh, give me that paycheck. He's like, uh, you need to contribute. <laughs> he didn't have any money. He needed to buy those newspapers. Welfare apparently was not an option for him because it would, it, it, he would be open to, like, shame from the world. You know, the shame of going on welfare. I don't think you can go on welfare if you live in a mansion. And it was his, totally. It was also his, I think you can, but... It was also his responsibility to take care of his family, according to the church and his beliefs, and Mm -hmm. he was falling way short of that. The marriage also had problems. Um, His wife was an alcoholic. She had a drinking problem and was unstable. She became really reclusive. She stopped going to church. She had blackouts, and she would fall a couple times, and her vision started going, and then she would, to self-medicate, she would drink and take tranquilizers. In 1968, she goes to the doctor because she's falling down. She can't see. There's all these medical maladies. And she's diagnosed with tertiary syphilis that she's been carrying for 18 years from her first marriage. Whoa. That she did not disclose to John. She has syphilis. She has syphilis. In fact, I mentioned before how she said she was pregnant when, in fact, she was not. They got married in Maryland in 1951, and at that time, Maryland was one of the few states that didn't require a premarital syphilis test, which was really common in a lot of states. Like, way back then, you would get a blood test before you got married to prove that you didn't have any STDs. Interesting. Isn't that fucked? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Maryland was one of the few states that that did not happen, which is where they got married. And people think that maybe Helen knew about this and didn't want to tell or disclose. So that's why they got married. And she she said she was pregnant to move it along. She was a paranoid recluse. She stayed home. And apparently she would also talk shit about John, saying that he wasn't as good as sex as her first husband. Ooh, ouch. Maybe he also, like, wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it might not have been talking shit. It might have been talking fact. If, you know, but apparently he was humiliated, which it sounds like this John List guy was really sensitive to any shame or humiliation. Well, I think all dudes are like that. That's fair. I don't think all dudes do what he did. Um, he also was worried, it was the early 70s, and he was worried that his kids were turning to sin, which is like the satanic panic of every 
generation has a satanic panic. Like Little Nas X is just a recent satanic panic. Mm-hmm. Um, his oldest daughter, Patricia, when they had moved here, she joined the drama club. She's like a Sin. theater kid. Yeah. He was like that. She wanted to be an actor. That's a career link to Satanism. And there were I don't rumors. disagree. <laughs> there were rumors that she was like into witchcraft, which probably means she was looked wicked. at her horoscope. No, she probably like looked at her horoscope. Oh. You know? And then she might have smoked weed. She was a 16-year-old girl in a new high school in the theater club. Come on. After months of planning, on November 9th, 1971, while his kids were at school, he sits down, he has breakfast with Helen, his wife. He's talking like no big deal. He leaves the room. He grabs a gun and from behind her, shoots her in the back of the head, kills her. He takes her body, puts it on a sleeping bag, drags it into the ballroom. The ballroom. I guess that's why you have that's a ballroom. That's why you get a fucking ballroom. Then he goes up to visit Alma, his mother. By the way, his mother and Helen did not get along. Whatever. He goes up to the ballroom. He goes up to the attic to see his mother. His mom is like, why? What was that crazy noise down there? And he's like, nothing, no worries. She was making herself breakfast, like a little toast. He said he kissed her and then shot her above the eye in the temple with a gun, killed her immediately. Whoa. She was 84 at the time. He tried to drag her body down to the ballroom, but it was too heavy. So he covered it with a towel and went back downstairs. He started to clean up the kitchen. He called the school and said, hey, um, the kid's grandma is sick. By the way, was actually sick. So sick, in fact, that she had canceled the trip to visit them in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, it saved her life because if she had been there, she also would have been killed by John List. Yeah, well, it would have been really weird if If he killed his mom and his wife and was like, but I... I can't kill you. My mother-in-law, never. Never. So he calls and says that the maternal grandmother is sick and that the kids won't be in school for the next couple of weeks. He also says that, calls their part-time jobs and says the same thing. He then and went, wrote a note and left it on a door to stop milk delivery. He also went to the post office and called the newspaper to stop all delivery to the house. Mm. He then went to the bank. He closed out his accounts, his mother's accounts. He cashed out any savings bonds, got the cash. He went home, made himself a little lunch. Then he gets a call from the school from Patricia, his 16-year-old daughter, saying she doesn't feel well. So he goes, okay, I'll pick you up. He picks her up. He brings her home. He shoots her in the jaw. She's killed immediately. He puts her body also on a sleeping bag, lays her next to her mother. Then Frederick, the youngest, 13-year-old, he comes home. He shoots him like he did Patricia. He dies immediately. He then goes to the Westfield High School where his kids go to school, and John Jr. is there. He's 15 years old, and he has a soccer game. So John List goes and watches his soccer game. Oh, shit. Picks him up, brings him home. I think he tried to shoot him cleanly. He ended up being shot 10 times because John Jr. struggled and fought back. He was shot 10 times. He also puts him on a sleeping bag, puts him in the ballroom. He says he said 10 times. That's wild. He methodically killed every member of his family. What do you think happened with his son? Do you think that he 
he said that as soon as he tried to kill his son, it didn't work. And I think his son was because it was his head and his chest that he was shot 10 times and his son was squirming. And John Sr. kept pulling the trigger to end his misery. He was like, he didn't suffer. His whole thing was like, he tried them to not suffer at all. Right. But 10 times, unloading a gun on your son. I don't know son. if you can say he didn't suffer. You shot him 10 times. 10 times. And if you shot him 10 times and he was moving in between those shots, that sounds like a, a period of suffering was taking place. Totally. Also, you know, you feel for him in the sense that you like to think that the others didn't see it coming, like John Liss says, and that they didn't know. They they didn't have a moment of being cognizant of the fact that their father or husband or son was their killer versus you look at this kid, if he was shot 10 times, knew what was he going knew on. what was going on. And the last thought he would have before dying is, my dad is killing me. Right. He then lays a towel over everyone's head in the ballroom. He gets a Bible out. He says a prayer over their bodies. Remember, he's still a devout Lutheran. He eats dinner. He does the dishes. He goes to bed, goes to sleep. I think he's misinterpreted the Bible's teachings. I'm pretty confident that's the case. The next morning he wakes up, turns down the air conditioner to preserve the bodies. He turns on the radio to a classical religious station that's constantly playing classical music over the intercom, over the loudspeaker, so it's in every room. Mm -hmm. He sits down, he writes a five-page letter to his pastor saying he saw too much evil in the world, and in order to save his family's soul, he had to kill them. And he couldn't kill himself because that's a, that's a punishment that he wouldn't go to heaven if he killed himself. Um, and he was going to meet them in heaven. But he wanted to preserve them. Oh, John, them. I so promise you, you're not going to heaven. He leaves the note on the desk in the study. He puts all of the lights in the house on. He then methodically removes his face and photo from his picture from every photo in Whoa, the house. Oh, creepy. Super horror story creeps. He drives his car to JFK. Oh, so they won't have a recent photo of him? Yeah. Oh, right. So there's no recent photos to put him on a wanted list or anything. Oh, got it. He then takes the car to JFK. He leaves. He takes the bus back to New York and he hops on a train. He goes to Michigan and then he goes to Colorado where he applies for a new social security number card. The family is known to be a reclusive family, right? Patricia's drama teacher started to feel like something wasn't right Mm -hmm. when the kids didn't come to school. Mm -hmm. And he always felt that John List was a weird guy, Mm -hmm. a weird dude. And apparently Patricia also told this teacher, she said that she was worried that he was going to kill the family. Oh, my God. So the kids knew something was up. You know, kids are fucking perceptive. Yeah. So I don't care what how fucking surprised that you were, John. Kids fucking knew. Remember, he left all the lights on. So mm. the neighbors were like someone's home. There was music playing. So they thought somebody was home. All of the mail and milk and all the deliveries were not stacking up on the front door. So they, they just assumed people were home. Got it. It was when the lights started burning out that the drama teacher was like, you know what? I'm going to go. He brought a bunch of, he brought a couple teachers over to the house and started snooping. It was at that point that the neighbors decided, let's call the police. 
There's music playing, the lights are burnt up, but there's some lights. The police come, they convince the police to enter the house through an open window on the first floor. The pol- imagine this scenario. The police come in, there's music blaring, classical music. I believe a funeral march. It's reported that a funeral march was playing. Oh, God. There's few lights that are on, so there are shadows. The rest are burnt out. They're walking through, and there's curtains blocking the ballroom. They open the curtains, and they're hit by the smell, smell. of decomposing bodies. They discover the four members of his family there, along with a note instructing them to go to, their, to the mother, who's in the third floor. They went in December 7th. This is a full month after he committed the crime. So think about all the time that he had to go change his identity, start a whole new life without ever having to look back. So he gets a month head start. Mm -hmm. Among the confession, there was also a series of letters that said to the finder. And there were a couple letters that were written out, one of which was to his old employer explaining how they could win new clients and finishing up files. Whoa. And another were to members of his family explaining why he did it. Immediately, the media hears about this and goes crazy. I mean, it's like seemingly a perfect murder. Like, they can't find the guy. There's no photos to reveal what he looks like. So there was a massive manhunt. They found nothing. There was no evidence that he got on a plane, and obviously all the recent photos of him were destroyed, as I said. Alma, her body was sent to Michigan to be buried next to her husband, and Helen and the three kids were buried in New Jersey. The house was empty for nine months before it mysteriously burned down in 1972. It was ruled as an arson, but it remains unsolved. There's no suspects. The craziest thing about this... I mean, that house was going to be extra haunted. Extra haunted, and it probably smelled to high heaven. Yeah. The crazy thing was, is when it burnt down, along with it, there was a Tiffany skylight that was like an original Tiffany skylight, and at the time, that was worth $100,000 which is enough to have paid his debts and helped pay the mortgage. That's so... so it's like, is that ironic? Don't you what think? would Alanis say? Um, what I do know is it's fucked. That Definitely. He was sitting on term. a 19-room Victorian mansion, and his own pride and misguided belief system made him think that the only way out was, was to, to kill, kill his everyone. whole family when he could have sold this skylight he and could have sold his condo. fucking skylight mm. also sell the fucking 19 room victorian <laughs> you ding dong so what's up with him he traveled by train like i said to colorado he changed his identity to robert peter clark known as bob he became a short order cook, and then through work, he became an accountant again and a comptroller. Like, he he fucking rose in the ranks because of his financial acumen. He joined the Lutheran Church out there. At the church, he met this woman, Dolores Miller, and they got married in 1985. In 1988, they moved to Virginia. So he's fucking living his life. Moved on. 18 years after the murders, America's Most Wanted heard about the case 
initially producers were like, no, because the sheriff of Union City, New Jersey, or wherever it was, reached out and was like, I have this cold case that you might be interested in. The producers immediately were saying, you know, too old, too cold. They weren't going to touch it. And then John Walsh heard about it. He liked the story. And so he put it on America's Most Wanted. Now, what was significant, again, because there's no photos, and also it's been 18 years, so the guy is aged. So he enlisted the help of this guy, Fran Bender, who's a forensic artist. He showed him all the photos he had of John List, and he also showed him photos photos of John List's extended family. And so what this friend, the forensic artist did is he made a sculpture of John List's face and aged it according to what his family aged look like. Got he it. even... So, like, he made a Genius. sculpture of his face. It was... It's incredible. He even picked out glasses based on the psychological profile of this guy. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Which was like, he's going to use this one. Like, these are the type of glasses he's probably going to be wearing. And they showed this bust on America's Most Wanted. Turns out a neighbor from Denver is watching this show and recognizes John from that sculpture that was sculpted of the potential aged version of John. The fucking glasses match. Are the glasses, of course. They're the glasses. So on June 1st, less than two weeks since that episode aired, he was arrested at the accounting firm that he worked at in Virginia. The police initially went to his house to Dolores Miller, his wife, and she was like, uh, what? (laughs) She has no idea. She has no fucking clue that this is not the man she... He maintains... That his identity is Bob Clark for months. For months, he stands by his new identity. Wow. The only way they finally even extradite him to New Jersey. They're like, find us someone that knew you before the year. 1972. Right. And like to say that you were this Bob Clark. He's guy. like, I'm Bob Clark. I'm Bob Clark. Just lying. Which, by the way, if, as far as I'm concerned, the Bible doesn't look positively on liars and murderers. So finally, they get his fingerprints from the scene of the crime, but also from his military records when he enlisted, and they match the fingerprints, and then there's more evidence that they found at the scene that he finally, in 1990, February 9th, 1990, he confesses that he is John Emma List. The trial, it goes to trial. His defense is that he had financial hardships and that he was laid off. A psychiatrist... Dude, we know how much the fucking Tiffany's is worth. <laughs> what a dumb dumb. What are you trying to do? I hope he read that in the fucking newspaper. A psychiatrist diagnoses him with OCD. By the way, the OCD does not make you kill anyone. The doctor also said, in conjunction with this diagnosis, that he showed no remorse. And he said, quote, this is a cold, cold man. They believe that because he had the OCD, that his choices were either to accept welfare or kill his family. And the amount of shame it would be to have welfare, he chose to kill his family. <laughs> they so said, crazy. They said because of this, he should only be guilty of second-degree murder. They're trying to plea down his murder. He's convicted of five counts of first-degree murder. At the sentencing hearing, he speaks and he says, I'm not responsible for my actions because of my mental state. The judge says, John Emma List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, five months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patrick, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. He gave him five terms of life in jail, 
to be served consecutively the maximum amount of penalty. Yeah. He then appealed, which I guess nope. makes sense, you always saying do. that he had PTSD because of his military service, because no, of World War II. Girl, you were in the financial corps. What was your PTSD? You didn't balance the books right? Come on. <laughs> Come on. He also argues that the letter that he left for the pastor in the house that was a confession was confidential because it was to his religious. Oh, you know, it, so it was admissible. The court obviously laughs him out, rejects it. In 2002, he had an interview with Connie Chung. God love her. This is what he said. I wish I had never done what I did. I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. When asked why didn't he take his own life, he admitted again that suicide would not allow him to go to heaven, but he still is convinced that he's going to be reunited with his family in heaven. Nope. He says they won't know what happened because they didn't know that I killed them, so they probably won't be even aware that I did that, and they'll be be welcoming him with open arms. Well, I think your 15-year-old son is going to let them know. What's amazing to me arrival. about this is that this guy showed no remorse until 2002. And even in what he said, he's quoted, I wish I had never done what I did. It's like you're not even acknowledging that you murdered everyone. It's like, i sorry I hurt your feeling. Terms. Exactly. On March 21st, 2008, at 82, he died from complications related to pneumonia while in prison. He did. In the report after his death, they called him the boogeyman of Westfield. Some little. I wish it was like the wiener of Westfield. <laughs> he. Everybody knew something was off about this guy, which I think is just really interesting. That everybody's blink on him was like, "This guy's a fuck." Something's, something's really up. wrong. Right. This is a little piece of trivia for our dear readers. In 1972, when he was missing after the murder, mm-hmm. he was added to the possible list of suspects for DB Cooper. Oh. <gasps> No. Dear readers, if you know D.B. Cooper, we covered it this in one of our earlier episodes. To this guy's no way, but they, the way they said it is D.B. Cooper asked for $200,000 that, you know, that was what he needed for the mortgage. But it's like, no, no, no there's no way. Um, the bust that happened that solved the case, which, by the way, hopefully, I'll, we'll, we'll post that hopefully on. Hopefully you'll get that for me, right? I'll get that for you for your birthday. I, I can't I have imagine. space for it. I can't imagine having a bust of a, of a killer in your house. Like, John Walsh was so proud of this bust and what it did to solve this case that he had it in his office for years. <laughs> I would wild. never. I would never have a bust like that in my house. Also, the image of the bust, it's, like, skin-colored. It looks like a decapitated head. And for our Instagram, we'll show you what the comparison looks like. It's pretty wild. But... That bust has since been donated to an exhibit that had been at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in D.C. That's now at the Alcatraz East Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, also known as the home of Dollywood. That's a story of John M. List. Wild. Thanks for telling that story. You're welcome, Quinn. It was a long one. It was. Um, but so very worth it. All right. I'm going to tell this story. Hang on. Let me make my text bigger because I'm old. You did say you're pushing 40. I wasn't lying. All right. This is a story brought to you by <gasps> our friend Laura. Laura! Laura wrote us this amazing Sweetest Pie Facebook message. And Truly made us blush, she's love. Mother of three. 
which I was telling her, I was like, look, you're my fucking hero because I, I wasn't blowing smoke up her ass every day that I'm having a hard day with the kids. I always whisper to myself, some people have three, some people have three, some people have three. It's like a mantra to be like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop feeling like this is hard. It could be way harder. Uh, people do a lot more than you're currently doing. Um, you have a mediocre podcast and two children. Calm down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fucking chill. Uh, thanks for the wreck. This is a great story. It's, I didn't read it because I couldn't because I didn't want to. Yeah, I told Carrie not to read what the suggestion was. And it's um, a story. You know what? I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to start because it's more fun that way. It's funner, I think, is the right way. It's funner. More fun. It's funnest. It's funnest. It's May 2001, and Stephen Lachance is in Union, Missouri. He's looking for a new house. He's got three kids, single dad, and so he's doing what you do, doing the newspaper ad thing, and gets a call from a real estate agent that's like, I got this old house on the market that... We're having an open house this weekend if you want to come by. And he's like, hot diggity do I ever. So they show up and it's this old big white house. And they walk into the smell of of baked cookies, which is an old, I believe, real estate trick. It's a great trick. Smart trick. Uh, It's a really nice house. It's got like the original woodwork. It's got two floors, three bedrooms. The basement has a fruit cellar, which... Well, you can make preserves and jam. I was like, can you just use that as a wine wine cellar? cellar? That's what I'd be doing. No judgment, though. You can put fruit in there, too. Well, can't you do a little canned preserves and a little vino? Both work. I think, I mean, I'm a little confused why cellars have to discriminate at all, but. Totally. I don't know. Anyway, they want the house. So they fill out the application and the landlady's like, are you sure you understand the responsibility that comes with living in an old home? And he's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I do. And she's like, great. So a week goes by and she calls and is like, congratulations, I picked you to get the house. And he meets her at a restaurant to sign the papers, which is a little weird. He says in retrospect, like, why didn't they meet at the house? But whatever, he's psyched to get it. That weekend is Memorial Day weekend, and he and his family move in on Friday of Memorial Day weekend. They're outside the house. They're getting boxes, and a car drives by and stops, and a guy leans out of the car and says, hope you get along okay here, and then drives off, which is pretty weird. It's like a drive-by well wish. I'm like imagining Patrick Wilson and Jennifer Connelly in this movie. Yeah. It's hard to not do the movie version in your head for this whole story. So they spend Friday night in this house, and everything's fine. Everyone's fucking tired because it was moving day. The next day, Stephen's unpacking, and he's, like, walking around the house, looking at it in greater detail, obviously, and notices something weird, which is that there's a hook and... and, uh, Eye? Yeah, eyelatch on every door, but it's on the wrong side. So it's, like, to lock something in. He's like, huh, weird. Their living room has cherubs all over it. I don't know if that they're, like, sculpted, if they're, like, in the woodwork. I think they're in the woodwork, probably. Anyway, that would put some people off, but he decides to lean in, and yeah. he's going to hang a picture of two angels in that room. It's well, like, all right, I don't know their style. It's a theme room, sure. <laughs> 
So he goes to hang this picture, and then as he walks away, it kind of hops off the wall. And so he turns and hangs it and walks away, and it hops off the wall. And they play this game back and forth for a while. And as it hops off the wall when he's turned, he'll also feel like a rush of air. You mean hops off the wall? You know, like he hangs it on the wall, and he can't figure out why every time he turns, it it hits the floor. Like, it's like wow. the wall's, like, rejecting the picture. Of angels. Which is weird, because there's cherubs all over the living room, so there's no accounting for taste. You know what I mean? It's like, what? We're doing the now theme. Now you don't like this picture? We're doing the theme. <laughs> the kids call their dad, and they're like, Dad, check this out. Super weird. Look out the window. And what he sees is that everyone in the neighborhood, when they walk by his house, they cross to the opposite side of the street. So, like, no one walks on their side of the street right by the house. Oh, God. Yeah. So that weekend, they're also going to do some yard work. You know, they just moved in. So it's um, it's Sunday, and they're out in the yard they're doing nesting. work. We yeah. It. It's what you do. He notices that the trees in their yard are all look like... Remember, it's Memorial Day weekend, so it should be, I don't know, blooming. And everything's dying instead. What should be blooming is dying. Like This is weird. So he's sort of like, mental note, I'm going to ask the landlady what the deal is with all these trees. He needs a hose from the basement. So he sends his youngest son. He's like, run, go to the basement, get me this hose. And a few minutes go by, and they just hear a scream. (gasps) Run in, and his kid is totally freaked out so freaked out he's wet his pants and he's like something was in the basement and chased me he's like okay he goes and looks in the basement obviously they can't find anything so he calms his kid down his other kids tease him and they go about their day monday comes so now he's got to go to work the kids got to go to school and when they get home all the lights in the house are on so he's like annoyed because he thinks it's the kids forgetting But this keeps happening throughout the week, that they would leave and come back and all the lights are on. So he's, like, being really deliberate about being, like, let me turn all the lights off. And then he's getting home knowing he did that and being, like, they're all on again, which is just creepy because then he has to kind of check the house because he's, like, is someone here? He feels a presence in the house. With it comes this electrical charge feeling. His daughter points out that the living room's super chilly. And he goes in and is, like, it is. It's way cold. But whenever he feels that electric charge, that presence, the temperature will rise visibly. Like, they'll look at a thermostat, and it will start to go up. Ooh. Yeah. So they spend this week in the house, and it's Sunday again. They're all in the living room, and Stephen, sort of out of the corner of his eye, sees something moving in the kitchen doorway that leads into the family room. And he looks over. And it's a dark figure of a man, but it's made up of, like, swirling black smoke. Like, classic scary ghost, right? yeah. He looks at it, and he will not believe it's there. He's like, I'm not seeing this. So he looks down and takes a minute to collect himself and is like, I know I'm not seeing that. Looks back up, and it's still there. And it moves into the family room and then evaporates. He's so, so scared that he has just seen this that he's like, doesn't want to freak his kids out. So he's like, um, hey, you guys. Ice cream. Let's go get a soda. 
and see grandma. And they look at him like, what? Like all his kids are like, what are you talking about? And he's like, hmm. And like grabs the car keys, which are in that room. And is like, come on, this is going to be great. Kids love soda. Let's go. And they're like, what's going on? Suddenly they hear a loud scream of a man from inside the house. And it's so loud that the dogs in the neighborhood start barking. They fucking run out of the house, get in the car. They get in the car and his youngest says, Daddy, the basement monster is standing in the upstairs window. (gasps) And he looks up and sees the figure he saw, the smoke figure, in the window watching them. And he drives away. They go to his parents' house and he's like, holy fucking shit. Obviously, they sleep there. He has a business trip that week. But he's like, great. The kids are staying with my parents. I'm going out of town. Gives everybody a minute to be like, what are we doing? Holy shit. Yeah, but in like a real horror movie move, they go back to the house on Friday. And nothing happens that night. And the next day is Saturday. And they go into this shed that's on the property in the yard. And they see all this stuff in it, like all these belongings uh, that are must have been stuff people left behind. So he calls the landlady and he says it's truly one of the most awkward phone calls of his whole life because he calls her and is like, hey, has anyone mentioned a ghost that's lived here? And she's like, oh, I I don't remember. And you're like, that's a weird response. I feel like you'd remember. And then she's like, well, there was a tenant that kind of claimed that her dead father was coming to visit her there. But I just think she was cuckoo. And he's like, okay. Um, There's also like a bunch of stuff in this shed. What's that story? And she's like, oh, well, there was a girl that lived there and I can't get her to come back for some reason to get her stuff. So the other stuff in the shed also belonged to a different man that had lived there and left a bunch of his stuff. It's weird people are leaving leaving their stuff. So he's like, well, how long did they live here? And she's like, oh, no one's really lived there longer than a year. Red flag. Very weird. Totally. Monday night, they've gone through the weekend. He's on the phone in the house with his mom. The kids are all in his room, which is on the first floor. Suddenly, during this phone call, he starts to hear the inside doors rattling. Mm -hmm. Like someone's rattling the door or like there's like a lot of wind, but there's not wind. It keeps getting louder. So he's like, kids, be quiet. And it just keeps getting louder, and he's trying to have this phone call. So he's like, you guys, be quiet. And suddenly his daughter's like, Dad, I'm in here reading, and the boys are asleep. As she says this, the temperature drops. And he's freezing and feels also that electric charge presence. And he hears a quiet scream start and start to get louder, no. louder, no. louder. And as it's getting louder, the door vibrations are getting more violent. 
it's like the whole house is coming alive or something. He yells into the phone for his mom to come and help them, hangs up and runs to go get his kids. But the door to his room won't open. Is it locked from the outside? So he, no, because he's on the outside. But he's like trying to open it and it won't open. So as he's trying to open it, the vibrations are getting louder. The screaming is getting louder. His kids are on the other side of the door fucking panicking. It's chaos. He starts throwing his body into the door to try to break it down. Just throwing it and throwing it. And finally, he body slams the door open. The kids come out fucking terrified. And he tells his older son to grab the younger son and run. They run. The daughter is frozen in fear. He's yelling at her, come on, come on. And she's just frozen. He slaps his daughter in this moment of chaos. And she sort of comes to, gets her to run out of the house. And they fucking run into the street, get in the car. They drive up to the top of the road and stop and look back down at their house. And they can see that black smoke figure moving from window to window to window and it looks like it's looking for them in the house. No, 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 no. They never, ever go back to the house. The kids do not return to the house. The dad, Stephen, goes back to get their things but always during the day, always in the company of others. And he says that whenever he goes to get something, the friend he brings will hear something, a whisper, a scream, a rattle, something some sort of presence. Oh, my God. Oh About my God. a month after moving, he's obviously told a lot of people in his life what happened. Right. But a month after moving, somebody reaches out to him and they're like, hey, Google John T. Crow, Union, Missouri. And it pulls up a face of a man he says matches a picture that his brother took in the basement. Like, his brother took a picture down by the cellar, and, like, he says a face showed up in it and looks like this face. It says a face that showed up in a picture. My interpretation of that is ghost face, but it could also be that his brother took a picture and there was a picture of this face. Either way, this house is commonly referred to as the screaming house. And it turns out that it was built on land that was owned by a Captain T. Crow. He was a captain uh, of the 1st Missouri Militia in the Civil War, and he lived there with his wife, Minerva. And the actual structure of the house, the actual White House we're talking about that was haunted, was built in 1932 on a part of the land that used to hold slave quarters. The house, it seems like, was built from a, a Sears and Roba kit, Right. They used to sell those, like, prefab houses. And it was right by a railroad, so that makes sense, because I guess the railroads would drop off those kits. Yeah. The slaves that lived on the land were listed as having belonged to Minerva, the wife. I guess it was her, her family owned them. She came to Union, Missouri from Kentucky with them. There's this rumor that she had an affair with at least one of her slaves, and that it may have been what led to her death and a bunch of the slaves' deaths. Like, that somebody then, I couldn't find much more about that. After her death, he ends up, Captain Crow sells this land to an A.J. Sayi, who later actually became the governor. The house is 
also just proximity wise really close to a nursing home which during the civil war was used as an infirmary yeah and then later during the early part of the 20th century it was the franklin county poor farm and when a person died they were buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in that surrounding land so they basically the house is built on old slave quarters where slaves were murdered Near an infirmary. an infirmary where people died and were buried in unmarked graves. Pretty terrible real estate, let's call it. It's like the gates of hell. And then there's all these stories about little things that may or may not have happened either on that property or on the houses surrounding it. During the late 1800s, a slave killed his wife with an axe near the property. Directly across from the house, there's two older homes, and in one of them... There's conflicting stories, but in either 1973 or 1974, a woman killed herself and then her husband. The only thing conflicting is the year I'm not totally sure of, and I know that she shot herself, but she either killed her husband with a gun or an axe, depending on the account you'll read. In the second house, a man killed himself in front of either his young son or his young nephew. Conflicting accounts. Jesus Christ. There's also evidence that as many as six Civil War soldiers were executed on that property at one point. Oh, my God. It's a rich history. According to the neighborhood, the haunting started back in 1965. Between 1999 through January of 2002, those three years, seven different families lived in the house. Lots of people left without their property and never returned to the house. This is corroborated by a Darlene Peters, who apparently is the landlady that owns the property. The residents say of like the neighborhood talk about having just an awful feeling that emanates from the home, which is maybe why people are crossing, crossing the, street. the street. People say that they feel physically ill when they get near it. Oh and then other God. people say it's not even the house. It's this whole neighborhood is just haunted. A few years after leaving, Stephen says that someone he knows calls him up and says that they saw a police car race up to the home in the middle of the night and they saw a family in their pajamas running out of the house. Oh my God. Where's so where's the, where's where's the Warrens? Where's Lorraine? Where's that in Lorraine? Oh, Lorraine knows about the house. Of course she, she d- goes and checks out the house. So does the Missouri Paranormal Research like committee or whatever. And they say and I think Lorraine would corroborate um, that there's a lot of entities within it. It's packed. But there's three portals of entry that the entities are using to go back and forth through the house. There's an alley behind the house. It's the basement in the house <sighs> and an area in the front yard. And there's a bunch of entities, but there's five main ones. A man, a woman, a boy, a girl, and you guessed it, a demon. Always a demon. Always a demon. Also, they talk about how in their findings, there are a lot of animals that would either be found dead or get really ill if they came into the house or showed signs of abuse. Two puppies, two kittens, and a hamster all lost their lives. No. Yes. As for humans, people that lived in this house were thrown, held against walls, Shoved downstairs, touched in, quote, inappropriate ways, bruised, 
bitten. I'm so annoyed at these rapist fucking I ghosts. Know. I know. It's bad enough that they did it in life. In life. To do it. Well, I don't know that they did it in life, to be fair. Well, there's enough it was just that happening in life. became a rapist when they died. I don't know. Uh, as for psychological impact, oh. the home makes people have, like, feelings of sadness and aggression and anger, and it gives people nightmares. A couple of people that live there even experienced this stuff after moving. They experienced what the phase of demonic oppression, which I don't know if you remember this from another of our episodes, but we learned that it goes in phases. Maybe this was... Right. Uh, I don't remember it was the house. Which I think in like um, in um, was it Gary, Indiana? That oh place maybe that was like we're at like obsession. We don't want to get to possession. It, oppression is the step before, before possession. possession. So they're pre-possession, but getting close to it after they've left the house. MPR, which is again Missouri Paranormal Research. Not um, to be confused with NPR. No, no. <laughs> Hopefully to be confused with, because that's very funny. They <laughs> captured a bunch of EVPs. They got a bunch of scary sounds coming from the house. They got a bunch of creepy photos. Um, obviously, the people that live there, a lot of them saw apparitions. Sometimes they look like ghost people, and sometimes they look like this black smoke monster. They say, NPR uh, says, the house had a way. This is so scary of tapping into the fears of children so children would see whatever they were most afraid of. No. Which reminds me of, like, It or something. Well, it reminds me of Harry Potter with the, um... There's a... There's a character... There's a... There's a... What's it called? It's it always not, goes back to Harry Potter, huh? It's, um, it starts with an R, but it's, um... R- that The spell is ridiculous, where you... Yeah. Okay. That's all. Cool. So, the kids report seeing things like a clown a leprechaun and like monsters kids would see all different things <sighs> they observe this temperature change phenomenon they observe random rancid smells moving throughout the house there was another smell that would move throughout the house that was a sort of perfume smell maybe that was attached to a different entity um, one of the smells they observe cookies baking so it wasn't a no. fucking real estate trick. It was ghost cookies. Wow. Yeah. They also say that while they were observing the house, members of their team would experience unexplained events in their own homes. So vibes like and entities travel. are traveling with them, oh, which is no. super scary. But whenever they would get some sort of spiritual guidance, that would stop. They didn't specify what guidance. MPR, spiritual leaders of different churches, other investigation teams, the Warrens included, of course. Everyone's like, okay, the house is possessed. Basically, everyone recommends exorcism. But when I was reading the report that MPR put out, they said, we cannot stress the danger of this location enough to the paranormal community, as well as the community of Union, Missouri. A word of caution. It's important to keep in mind the Roman Catholic Church has deemed the Union, Missouri haunting a classic case of demonic infestation, oppression, obsession, and possession in a 156-page document. Please do the not. The Catholic Church did? Yes. Please do not take the chance with your well being and the well being of your family and try to search out the location of this home. 
it can and has been dangerous for some people who have been exposed to it. This haunting at times can ruin lives and also at times is believed to have been deadly. This is not a location to be taken lightly. And Stephen, who lived there, says, You see, I do believe in ghosts. I still drive past that house every once in a while. And when I get enough nerve, I look at the upstairs window. And it's there. Watching, waiting, angry. Sometimes its screams still wake me from my sleep. Its infectious scream creeping into my dreams, turning them into nightmares. I still don't sleep very well. In my dreams, I see a faceless man standing in that basement, washing away blood from his naked, blood-covered body, grunting, panting, breathing. The breathing you'd hear when you were alone with it in a room. The breathing you would hear when you knew it was there. Heavy, labored breathing. Yes, I do believe in ghosts. I do believe in ghosts. And maybe you should, too. And that is the story of the Union Screaming House. And my sources were Legends of America. Oh, I love Legends of America. That's a great website. Paranormal Task Force and the Screaming House at WordPress.com. How did Laura find it? She sent me the Legends of America, which is all Stephen's account. And Stephen Lachance wrote a book called The Uninvited, I believe. Um, How that's is this not made this. into a movie yet? And I'm sure it will be. Um, I'm sure it has been, honestly. It has to be. Oh, that is so creepy. But so thank you, Laura. Laura and thank, thank you, Stephen you. Lachance, for telling your story about living in this house. Oh, and I, I hope hate... people buy your book because this is a really incredible firsthand account of this haunting. I feel like to get the Catholic Church to create a 156 page means like because they they don't do that shit lightly. They no. do not, especially... It's a 156-page document that is saying, we're for real. This is a demonic possession. This ha-ha-ha happened. Oh, fucking hey, that's awful. So don't go find that house. I am staying so away. Don't even go to Union, Missouri. Laura's there, but I don't think she's going to look for the house. Are you, Laura? Laura, we'll come stay with you. We won't be staying. She has three school. kids. She, she doesn't need she us can't. to... Yeah, she can't be hosting. Fair. That's fair. Holy shit, Laura, thank you. I always just, obviously, like, I love a possession. I love a parent. But, like, that freaked me the fuck out. There's, like, no... The thing is, is what's crazy about it is there's no one disproving it. And all most of all of our paranormal conversations, it's people being like, here's a possible explanation. Do you know what I mean? No. That one, there's no possible explanation. The possible explanation is... Everybody's crazy together. It's on a graveyard. That's the possible explanation. The explanation is it's haunted. It's haunted. But <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Just, we usually cover haunted cases where it's like, and it you're could like, have been maybe. this, and maybe it was no. just coincidence. This is like... No. 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 Okay. That's all. Adios. Adios.